Well, I just want to open this by saying I'm very, very thankful to not be preaching on Revelation. <laughs> I was getting a reputation. <laughs> My college pastor was Rick Holland, and uh, Rick, I heard him preach on Ephesians. I heard him preach on Proverbs. I heard him preach on Ecclesiastes. I heard him preach on biblical masculinity. But you preach two dating series, and all of a sudden you become the, the dating pastor. I feel like I was starting to become the Revelation pastor, and I'm very glad to be studying something other than Revelation with you. Uh, however, this is a heavy topic. Um, I appreciate Pastor Bart beginning the series for us this morning and presenting for us a, a, a biblical worldview of our emotions. Uh, our emotions are not to be dismissed. We are not to delve into raw stoicism. Our emotions are part of who we are as human beings created in the image of God. And we experience a variety of emotions throughout the Christian life. What we're looking at tonight is the twin topics of guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. This has been a, a heavy study. It's been a refreshing study. It's been beneficial to my own heart. Um, I, I will confess that at certain times we might get uh, raw a little bit, so I will try to stick to my notes as much as possible. We live in a world that is plagued by guilt and shame. And how do we know that the world has been plagued by guilt and shame? I think one of the best indicators we can perceive that the world is plagued by guilt and shame is by looking at the extents and the extremes that unbelievers will take to run away from their guilt and shame, to redefine their guilt and shame, to reinterpret guilt and shame, to suppress it, to ignore it, to deflect it. We live in a society where on one level, people ought to experience more conscious guilt and shame than they actually seem to do. And on another level, we know because of the word of God's teaching that deep down, deep down, though it be suppressed by years and years and years of denying God and denying biblical authority, human beings do experience a, a very real sense of guilt and shame. That is true for unbelievers, and that can be true at times in the life of a born-again Christian as well. Undoubtedly, in a room this size, with this many people who are present here tonight, undoubtedly, you have experienced, many of you have experienced, or maybe are presently, currently experiencing a type of guilt or shame. A type of guilt or shame. The central idea I want to leave you with tonight, let me go to the title slide, sorry. The title slide is Scripture's Answer for Guilt and Shame. And we will be looking at passages all throughout the Bible. I wish we could camp out on one text, but the Bible has just so much to say about this in both Old and New Testament. Scripture's answer for guilt and shame. The central idea I'd like to leave with you tonight is that the answer for both guilt and shame is found completely in Jesus Christ. That's our next slide. The answer for guilt and shame is found completely and perfectly in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you take nothing else away from tonight, please take away that. If you are experiencing guilt or shame of any kind, every solution is available to you in Jesus Christ, in who he is and what he's done. He stands ready to receive you in your guilt and in your shame, and he can 
take care of your guilt. He can take care of your shame. It doesn't matter what you have done or what has been done to you. He has an answer. He is the answer. Here's our outline for tonight. It's fairly, fairly simple, and the pastors who preach uh, subsequently in this series will follow roughly the same outline. First, we want to define our concepts. We want to define our concepts. Specifically tonight, we're going to define the concepts of guilt and shame. Secondly, we're going to examine the struggles caused by guilt and shame. We're going to examine these struggles biblically through the lens of Scripture. Third, we're going to evaluate the proposed remedies. Evaluate the proposed remedies. The world has a variety of remedies for dealing with your guilt and your shame. And Scripture has remedies for dealing with your guilt and your shame. A sad truth of the Christian life is that we are often tempted to follow the world's recipe, the world's remedy for dealing with guilt and shame. You may be doing that and not even knowing it. We're going to evaluate those remedies, and then we're going to consider the results. What happens if? What are the likely outcomes if you follow the world's advice for dealing with your guilt and shame? And what is the outcome if you follow the narrow yet faithful and true path of the Bible for dealing with your guilt and shame? And lastly, I want to leave you with some pastoral counsel on how you can cultivate godly growth, cultivate godly growth through the word. Again, one more time, our central idea, our central idea is that the answer for both guilt and shame is found completely in Jesus Christ, totally, perfectly, completely in Jesus Christ. And where do we find Christ? You know where we find Christ. We find truth about God in general in creation. I was just on the canoe trip last weekend, and in the midst of paddling through six-inch deep water, I got to confess, I didn't tip over once because it's impossible to tip when there's only six inches of water. But in the midst of all that, I saw God's creation on display, and it was awesome. We see general truth about God in creation, but where do we find Christ? You find him in the Word. So if you want to answer your guilt and shame, you go to Christ. And where do you go to find Christ? You go to the pages of Scripture, 2 Corinthians 3.18. We look at Scripture with unveiled face. And when we do look at Scripture with unveiled face, what do we see? We see the glory of Christ. And what happens? We're transformed. What's transformed? All of us. Your emotions and your guilt and your shame. Look at Christ, where you see Christ in Scripture. So let's define these terms according to Scripture. But before we look at Scripture, let's look in contrast. How does the world define guilt and shame? I spent some time researching various psychological articles on how the world defines guilt and shame. And generally speaking, I agree, at least at the starting point, with most of the basic definitions of the world's definitions of guilt and shame. It's when they start further fleshing out those definitions and then addressing proposed remedies, we as Bible-believing Christians would tend to disagree But the American Psychological Association describes guilt as this, a self-conscious emotion characterized by a painful appraisal of having done or thought something that is wrong and often by a readiness to take action designed to undo or mitigate this wrong. The APA, American Psychological Association, defines shame as a additional strong fear of one's deeds being publicly exposed to judgment or ridicule. The world, and frankly most of us in the church, 
refer to guilt primarily in terms of a feeling. At the outset, I want to be clear, guilt is not just a feeling, right? To quote Chicago, more than a feeling, right? Guilt is actually a status. Guilt is a state. But for our purposes tonight, when we say guilt, I'm using the term interchangeably with guilty feelings. Guilt is actually an object of reality. You are either guilty or you're not guilty. But when we use the term guilty in the common vernacular, we use it to refer to that sense of feeling like you're in trouble. That's how we're going to use it tonight, this sense of feeling like you've done something wrong and you're in trouble with someone or something. Shame, on the other hand, APA describes shame as this, a highly unpleasant self-conscious emotion arising from the sense that there being something dishonorable, immodest, or indecorous in one's own conduct or circumstances. It's typically characterized by withdrawal from social intercourse. For example, by hiding or distracting the attention of another from one's shameful action, which can have a profound effect on psychological adjustment and interpersonal relationships. If we could sum up the world's idea of guilt and shame, it would be this. Guilt is when you feel like you're in trouble with someone greater than you. Shame is when you feel embarrassed amongst your peers or amongst society. Guilt is when there's a judge or the law or someone over you, you violated their standard. Shame is when you feel like you don't measure up to those around you. The concepts are intertwined, yet they are distinct, but the remedy for them is the same. It's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. How does the Bible define guilt and shame? That's how the world defines guilt and shame. How does the Bible define guilt and shame? Surprisingly, the first actual mention of the word guilt doesn't show up until all the way in Genesis 26. The actual use of the term guilt is found in Genesis 26, which is the chapter that focuses primarily on Isaac. Isaac foolishly commits the same sin that his father Abraham committed twice. Isaac was afraid that because of Rebekah's beauty, he would be attacked and Rebekah would be taken, so he lied, said, said Rebekah was his sister. Abimelech took Rebekah, and then it was revealed to Abimelech that he had taken Isaac's wife. So Abimelech confronts Isaac, and he says, what is this you have done? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. It's the first instance of the word guilt mentioned in Scripture. It's this idea of being in the wrong, being in the wrong. It means essentially in the Hebrew what it means in English, being in the wrong. Shame actually shows up earlier than the word guilt in the negative, in the negative. It's in Genesis 2.25, describing the state of Adam and Eve before the fall when they had nothing to hide. That's the emphasis of this verse. Adam and Eve had nothing to hide because there was no sin. Genesis 2.25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This word shame in Hebrew essentially means what it means in English. Guilt and shame are in the scripture what they mean in English. Guilt, being in trouble with an authority greater than you. Shame, being embarrassed about something you feel needs to be hidden or covered up or minimized or shoved under the rug. Both guilt and shame are simply presented to us in Scripture as facts that are readily understood by the reader. This is because these two sensations, guilt and shame, are part of the natural human experience ever since the tragedy of the first sin. I know every person in this room understands what it means to feel guilty and to feel ashamed. This stems all the way back to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she gave also some to her husband who was with her, 
and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. What, what changed? What changed in Adam and Eve's situation? Nothing on the outside. They were unclothed before. They were unclothed after. What changed fundamentally is that sin had entered into their hearts. Shame stems from a consciousness of our sin, and it makes us want to cover and hide. Shame stems from a consciousness of our sin, and it makes us want to cover and hide. Immediately after taking of the fruit that they should not have taken of, they knew something was wrong. They may not have been able to put a finger on it or use precise theological terminology, but they knew, like all of us know, that something was wrong. I'm reminded of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, righteous man on the outside, popular, a leader in society, wealthy, everyone looking up to him, holds a position of authority, yet he knows deep down something's wrong. So he runs to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Perhaps there are some here in this room tonight who know something is wrong. That is guilt. Adam and Eve were exposed. They now felt that they had something to hide, so they sought to conceal themselves from God and from one another. They sowed fig leaves. Nakedness was now shameful because every human being knows deep down that they have something to cover up. We stand in violation of God's perfect holiness, and we feel that fundamentally, that this violation needs to be covered James Montgomery Boyce, writing on this chapter, he says, A painful effect of that knowledge of good and evil gained by doing evil is shame. And the standard attempt to get rid of shame is concealment. We think back to that beautiful verse that ended chapter 2, that the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And we realize how much has been lost by disobedience. Before there was no shame, none at all. There was nothing to be ashamed of. Now there is enormous shame, focused in Adam and Eve's sense of nakedness before God, each other, and themselves. The proof of this acute sense of shame was their attempt to cover themselves with garments made of fig leaves, probably the closest thing at hand. To sum this all up, what are, we, what are we setting up the contrast here? The world says that guilt and shame come from violating arbitrary external norms. Perhaps you broke a man-made law, or perhaps you violated a societal norm. Maybe, maybe your car isn't cool enough. Maybe your phone isn't the newest model. Maybe your clothes are outdated. I know I'm using examples that high schoolers might resonate with, but that's my past six years of experience. You understand. You can fill in the blank. That's the world's understanding of, oh, I, f- I should feel embarrassed about this. The Bible presents to us by both, description, by both prescription and especially description we see in Genesis 3, guilt and shame come from a conscious sense of violating God's standard and going against God's holiness. Guilt and shame, biblically speaking, find their root in a fundamental violation of God's holiness and perfect standard. Now, before we move on, I just want to, there's going to be several excurses tonight. I'm, I'm sorry, I'll try to go through them quickly. Before we go on, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I want to I be really clear about this. Guilt and shame sometimes get a bad rap. That, you know, sometimes we quickly apply the uh, Christian cliche, well, Christ came to free you from guilt, and he, and he did. He did come to free you from guilt. We're going to talk about that. But in Isaiah and in Jeremiah, the Lord condemns false prophets who heal the wounds of the people too lightly. 
If you let yourself or somebody off the hook when it comes to your guilt and shame without following God's prescribed path of confession and repentance, that's called healing your wound too lightly, excusing your sin too easily. Uh, in, I hope this doesn't make me turn in my man card, but in Pride and Prejudice, uh, <laughs> near the end of Pride and Prejudice, uh, Mr. Bennett is chastising himself for how um, carelessly he was in his, the upbringing of one of his daughters who acted very rashly, and um, his daughter Lizzie tries to comfort him and, and says, it's not that bad, Father. And, and he says, oh, the feeling will pass probably more quickly than it should. I remember seeing that for the first time and thinking, that's how most of the world gets rid of their guilt and shame. They let the feeling pass more quickly than it should. It's healing the wound too lightly. Guilt and shame are good things if they drive you to your knees in confession and crying out to the Lord God for mercy. If guilt and shame drive you to the point of the tax collector in Luke 18 who won't even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beats his breast and he says, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner, that is a good thing. That is a good thing. That's when guilt and shame are doing what God intended them to do to drive you to a recognition that you bring nothing to the table, that you are a filthy, rotten sinner, and that God has everything you need. Guilt and shame is what the church of Laodicea needed in Revelation 3. I said I was going to go to Revelation, but I, I can't help it. Revelation 3, they thought they had everything. They thought that they were clothed, that they were rich, that they were all well off. And Jesus says, you don't, you don't realize that you are poor, pitiable, blind, naked. Come to me, I'll give you salve for your eyes. Come to me, I'll give you garments to clothe you. Come to me and buy from me gold without price so that you can be truly rich. Guilt and shame should bring us to our knees. I'm getting ahead of myself. This is one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told us in John 16, he said, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. In fact, friends, it is a scary situation. It should fill you with absolute dread and horror. Probably the worst situation for a living human being to be in is if you are in active sin and you feel no sense of guilt and shame. Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, frankly, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 3, Hebrews 4, Hebrews 12, all have profound warnings for you if you are in present, active, ongoing sin and you feel no sense of guilt and no sense of shame. Hebrews 6, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible, ad dunamis, not able, no power, is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain and often falls on it produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, what's land that bears thorns and thistles? It's a person who hears the word and hears the word and hears the word and there's no response, no remorse, no repentance, no guilt, no shame, just whatever. If it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Hebrews 10, 26, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Hebrews 10, 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So there are those who should experience guilt and shame. And when they do, it is a wonderful gift from God. It drives them to their needs in confession. 
And there are those who don't experience guilt and shame, and they ought to. And that's a scary, scary place to be. But I want to speak briefly. What about those who experience a sense of guilt and shame when they ought not to? What about Christians who struggle with guilt and shame? Well, let's move on to our next point, and hopefully this will help you. Let's examine the struggle caused by guilt and shame through Scripture's lens. Examine, so we define the concepts, now we're examining the struggle. The world, as we said earlier, the world understands the source of guilt and shame to be a, a sort of violation of a moral code, some type of arbitrary man-made law or social contract or, or human code. Shame comes from a sense of falling short of a social expectation. As we said before, your clothes aren't cool enough. Your car is too old. You don't know as much as this other person. You're not as articulate as that person. You haven't been in the church as long as that person, so you feel ashamed. You feel embarrassed. This stuff, frankly, it doesn't matter. If I could just offer you one practical piece of pastoral advice that has helped me, think ahead to the last day. Please, please, please think ahead to the last day. None of these things that make us embarrassed will matter on the last day. None of them. You feel like you don't measure up to your coworkers. They've got nicer cars than you. Or your coworker gets the better promotion than you do. Or your neighbor has a nicer whatever than you do. And you feel embarrassed. You feel ashamed. A friend at church can afford to send their kids to this college and you can't or whatever. I don't know. Fill in the blank. Think ahead to the last day when it's you at the Bema seat of Christ. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And your life's ministry is put at the Bema seat. And it's evaluated. Not heaven and hell aren't on the line. Your salvation is secure. But the fruit of your life is evaluated. And some of it will be gold, silver, precious jewels. And some of it will be wood, hay, and stubble. All of these things that cause us to feel embarrassed, they just won't matter. If you can constantly think ahead to that last day, you will be able to more adequately handle especially the idea of shame, the idea of shame. The Bible understands the source and nature of these emotions, guilt and shame, as an awareness that we have somehow fallen short of God's perfect and holy standard. This is even true for unbelievers. A very familiar passage is Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. I'll read it to you. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. He's talking about both Gentiles and Jews. Those who have the law of Moses will be judged by it. Those who don't have the law of Moses will also be judged by it. Well, how can that be, Paul? He answers it. Romans 2, verse 13. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, meaning they don't have the written law of Moses, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. All of us have the law of God written on our hearts. This is why societies throughout history, even those who have never even heard the gospel or the word of God, have, with, with obviously there's always some bizarre exceptions, and those can be attributed to the perverseness of sin. But as a general rule throughout history, people have understood that there are certain lines you do not cross. Murder is wrong. Rape is wrong. Incest is wrong. These things are wrong. And even cultures and pagan societies who have never had the Bible have affirmed that these things are wrong. Why? Romans 2, the law of God is written on their hearts. It's written on their hearts. 
That's where guilt and shame come from. It's an understanding that we have violated God's righteous standard. We have, value, we have violated God's righteous standard. How do we deal with guilt and shame? Let's move on to our third major point. Let's evaluate the proposed remedies for dealing with this sense of I'm in trouble with God and this sense of I don't measure up to others. Guilt, I'm in trouble with a higher authority. Shame, I don't measure up to those around me. Well, how does the world suggest that you deal with guilt and shame? Well, you could suppress it. You could suppress guilt and shame. This would include minimizing it or excusing it. Just try to ignore it. You know, Romans 1 describes the unbelievers as suppressing God's truth and unrighteousness. And this is the idea, if you've ever been at a pool or at the beach, you have a beach ball and you push it under the water and it wants to come up, it wants to come up, but you keep pushing it down and pushing it down and pushing it down and there are people who spend their entire lives just suppressing it, pushing it down. They know that they stand guilty in God's courtroom and so they spend their entire lives suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. You could suppress your guilt you could minimize it or excuse it. Speaking of minimize, sorry, it's so small. <laughs> That's an example I didn't even plan. Uh, so you could suppress your guilt, minimize or excuse it. You could redefine your guilt. Just change the standard. If you change the law, then you're not guilty. And aren't we seeing this in society today? If we just redefine what is acceptable, if we redefine what is right or wrong. I mean, I am not trying to single out a specific group of people because all sinners are guilty of this. But we just saw an entire month of this, did we not? What was scandalous half a century ago is celebrated. Redefine the standard and you're no longer guilty. People do this not just with sexuality but with so many other things. Cutting corners on your taxes. Not reporting things you ought to report. Playing fast and loose with obedience to the government. If you redefine what's expected of you, you don't have to feel guilty. You can suppress your guilt. You can redefine your guilt. You can ignore your guilt. This goes hand in hand with suppression, but this is the idea of distracting yourself to death. Filling your attention with hobbies, sports, entertainment, work, family. Good things like work and family. Physical fitness, just filling your mind with it, making it your thing. All about this idol, all about this thing. That's, some of these might be good in and of themselves, but if they take an inordinate position because you're trying to run from that guilt or that shame, you can distract yourself to death. Anything to take your mind off the fact that you stand in trouble with the holy God or that you are found wanting in the face of your peers. Another way that people try to handle guilt and shame is legalism. Self-atonement. Now, what is legalism? When I think of legalism, I think of the Princess Bride. And I think of Inigo Montoya. And he says, you keep on using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And that's how I think of most people in the church use legalism. When they see somebody living a principled life of obedience, like saying, well, I'm not going to uh, do this, or I'm not going to do that, because it goes against their conscience. Sometimes other Christians say, you're just being legalistic. No, no, no. A life of principled obedience is actually healthy Christian living. It's not legalism. Legalism is using one's actions to either attain or maintain your standing with God. Using your actions to either attain or maintain, to either get or keep 
your standing with God. Legalism is not a life of discipline, holiness, and obedience. But to be honest, most of the world are experts in legalism. Many people in the church are experts in legalism, but most of the world is experts in a type of legalism. What do I mean by that? Every false religion other than real, authentic, genuine Christianity, but every other religion, which are all false religions, are exercises in legalism. Legalism can be formal, false religions like Islam, Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, or informal, the mindset that you meet with most people these days. This idea of says that I'm a good person. I'm better than most. I don't do things that that person does. Well, I volunteer for charity. I give to the Salvation Army. Uh, at least I'm not like that guy down the street. Do you know what he does? Do you hear him screaming at his kids? Do you hear him yelling at his wife? That's a type of legalism. I'm better than this person. I'm better than that person. It's the same idea of the one camper who said to the other camper when they were attacked by a bear, he says, I don't have to outrun the bear, I just have to outrun you. A lot of people view their moral conduct in that way. Well, I don't have to be perfect, but I'm better than the guy down the street. That's informal legalism. That's how people deal with their guilt and their shame. They can redefine their shame. Paul writes about this in Philippians 3. He writes to the Philippian believers, he says, verse 17 through 19, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. People can redefine their shame, just like if they can redefine morality, if they can redefine shame, it can be something that goes from being a, a badge of dishonor to a badge of honor. How does the Bible propose that we deal with guilt and shame? There's several things, and some of them are going to be up there. Some of them are not, but I guess that doesn't really matter because I made it too small. How does the Bible propose we deal with guilt and shame? First and foremost, you need to inform your conscience. Inform your conscience. There are times when you may feel guilty for something that is not a sin. We see a picture of this in 1 Corinthians 8 in Paul's discussion with the Corinthians about meat sacrifice to idols. The problem with the Corinthian church was that there was the practice of meat that had been sacrificed to idols, and after it's sacrificed to idols, it's taken from its little idolatry place, and then it's brought to an adjacent marketplace, and it's sold at a discount rate, right? I mean, that, what, on one hand, that just shows the, the folly of paganism. Like, hey, discount meat for sale. It's just offered some pagan god, but here, I'll give it to you at a good price, right? Uh, and some Christians had no problem with that, none at all. Like, great, it's meat. I can buy it cheap. An idol is nothing. It means nothing to me. Not a problem. And other Christians, especially those who had recently been saved out of idol worship, could not get over the fact that, oh, this has been offered to an idol. I just, I can't do that. I can't do that. I had a similar experience when I was out in California. I liked listening to certain music, certain bands, and I had no problem with it. It wasn't like anything overtly sinful, but there's a fellow believer at the church and heard me listening to the music in the, in the car, and he had gotten saved out of, a, of just a very rough and heavy, sinful lifestyle. He'd been radically transformed by the gospel, and he heard that music, and he said, brother, how, how can you listen to this? And at first, I was offended, like, hey, whoa, that's fine. It's, you know, it's just Creedence Clearwater Revival. It's not that bad. And, but he, he was so convicted on my behalf that it's like, okay, I don't have to listen to it. I don't have to listen to it all. I don't have to listen to it around him. It's, I don't need to flaunt it. He's more important to me than listening to the music. 
Well, sometimes people may feel guilty for something that is not a sin, but it's a sin to them. The Bible's counsel to you is that you do not violate your conscience. We see that in Romans 14. Absolutely, do not violate your conscience. Romans 14, verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. On matters of Christian liberty, on, on great area matters, we are free to disagree, but be convinced from the scripture of your position and do not go against your conscience. Going against your conscience actually is a terrible practice to adopt, and it can lead to personal ruin. My hero Martin Luther said at the Diet of Worms, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. While you should not violate your conscience, you should inform your conscience. How do you inform your conscience? Constantly be going back to the Word of God. Your conscience is not inspired. It's a gift from God. It's the pain receptor for your soul, but it's not inspired. It needs to be calibrated according to the truth of God's word daily. Inform your conscience. Next, confess your sins completely. How do you deal with guilt biblically? Inform your conscience. Confess your sins completely. Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Psalm 32, 1 through 5, I was tempted to just camp out in just Psalm 32 for this whole evening, but there was too much more to cover. But Psalm 32, 1 through 5, David wrote after he experienced forgiveness from God for his horrible sins of adultery, murder, and almost a year's worth of lying and deception. What does David write? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, when I didn't confess my sins, what happened? My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, guilt and shame. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. To acknowledge is the Hebrew word, Strong says, to reveal, to be made known. It's to just lay it all out there. It's the opposite of cover. He says, I did not cover. That means to conceal, to hide, to clothe, exactly what Adam and Eve tried to do with the fig leaves. But no, David says, I confessed it to you. It's open. Nothing held back. James 5.16, James says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. To confess, the root word is homologeo, to say the same thing about your sin that God says. To confess your sins completely means you don't hold anything back, but you call your sin not a mistake, not an accident, not an, not an error of judgment, none of these half, halfway apologies that the world comes up with when somebody gets caught in some scandal, but you openly say, this is what I did, and it's wrong. And it's wrong not just because I say it's wrong, it's wrong because God says it's wrong. And I fully and totally agree with the God of the Bible that this sin was evil and wrong and wicked, and I rightly deserve sin and death and hell, but God has graciously forgiven me. That's confession. You agree with God, and you hold nothing back. Confession requires humility. Keith Lambert writes in his book, Finally Free, how does a person come to know God's favor? How does a person receive God's mercy to change? In James 4, 6, God speaks his promise to you. If you want my favor, humble yourself. If you want my mercy, confess your sin. There's no mercy or favor for those who arrogantly cover their sin and keep it hidden. You will find God's grace to change only when you humbly confess your sin. True confession will always be accompanied by repentance. Isaiah 55 
Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, not do what I tell you? 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, the Thessalonians turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, you put off your old self and you put on, you renewed in the spirit of your minds and you put on the new self. True confession will always be accompanied by repentance. What else do you do? Inform your conscience, confess your sins. Friend, rest in God's forgiveness. Rest in God's forgiveness. Psalm 130, verse 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Micah 7, 18 through 19. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. There are more passages we could look to, but we're running out of time. God's forgiveness for you is beyond your comprehension. If you are a Christian and you are wrestling with guilt over past actions and you have sought to inform your conscience and you have confessed everything, you have not held anything back, and then, then, friend, you need to, on the authority of God's word, rest in God's forgiveness. Rest in God's forgiveness. If you look and you see there's nothing you're holding back, but you have actively turned from that sin, you have turned from that sin, and by God's grace and God's help, you are seeking to put on righteousness, then rest in God's forgiveness. Ed Welch, in his book, Shame Interrupted, says this. He says, this is where our spiritual life gets interesting. We are back to that thorny problem we have in accepting a lavish gift when we have nothing to offer in return. Grace is uncomfortable. It carries overtones of embarrassment. No, no, I can't accept that. No, no, I can't accept that. I am unworthy. That sounds noble and religious, but we know better. A starving person doesn't refuse free food. Desperate people accept gifts. Don't let religious-sounding reluctance fool you. When you plead unworthy and you refuse to be served by God, you place your judgment about yourself above God's. You say you would prefer to go it alone, and you imply that your unworthiness goes beyond the scope of God's mercy and grace. You must think that God cleanses you only from ordinary sins, but not from the spectacular ones. Welch's point is that God's forgiveness is so deep and so profound that it cleanses you from the spectacular sins. Shame. How do we handle shame biblically? We have almost no time. Remember God's kindness. Remember the kindness of God. When Jesus Christ was on earth, there was no one who was too dirty or too unclean for him. His birth was announced to the shepherds, the lowest of the low. He touched the leper in Mark 1. Did he need to touch the leper? No, he healed the centurion's son miles away. But he touched the leper. He touched the woman with the issue of blood, or he let him touch her. He healed the man born blind, the man that everybody looked down on and said it was because of either his sin or his parents' sin that he's this way. He ate with the tax collectors and the sinners. He called the tax collectors to come follow him, Matthew as his own apostle. In fact, the people who were cut off from the goodness of Jesus Christ were not those who were too dirty, but those who were too self-righteous. When Christ was here on earth, there was no one too dirty for him. Friend, if he reached out and touched the leper, then he has kindness for you. Why is there so much description in the book of Leviticus about the, the horrors of leprosy and the complications of leprosy and how much it, it would totally inconvenience the life of an Israelite? Why? Why is that in Leviticus? So that when you get to Mark 1 and you see Jesus touching the leper, you realize he can reach out to me. If you have done something awful and horrific, if you have been unfaithful to your spouse, if you have been guilty of some type of abuse or some type of deception or some type of 
pornographic addiction or whatever it is, whatever it is, you are not too dirty for Christ. If you will confess and come to him and bow the knee to him and receive his forgiveness, and that is how your guilt and your shame can be dealt with, in fact, only be dealt with. But what about that persistent feeling, I just feel like something's wrong. I wish we had time to go into this, 1 John 3, 19 through 20. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. MacArthur writes this, Those who've been justified by faith are at peace with God and enjoy the peace of God. Nevertheless, a believer may experience unnecessary guilt as his heart condemns him. But there is a higher court than the human heart, for God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. If he has declared believers righteous in Christ, then they are righteous. Thus Paul wrote, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1. And nothing can ever separate them from the saving love of God in Christ. Friend, spend much time in the descriptions of what God has done for you. If you want to tackle guilt and shame biblically, inform your conscience, confess your sin, repent of your sin, rest in the kindness of God, rest in the forgiveness of God, and go often to the gospel. Go often to the gospel. Take Romans 8, write the whole thing out on a series of index cards, and review it every morning until you believe it. I know we're out of time, but I do want to speak to a certain type of person, actually two types of people, two types of people. I want to speak first to the person who feels guilt and possibly even shame for what they feel to be a general miscarriage of their responsibilities. It's not one sin, but you struggle with this idea, this feeling that when you look back on a previous season of life, perhaps it's a relationship, a responsibility, perhaps it's a child who's now grown and out of the home, maybe it's a former season of life, and you feel like you could have done more. And perhaps you could have prayed more or witnessed more or served more or sacrificed more. And now that season is over. That relationship has ended. That instance or opportunity has come and gone. I know we've all felt that. You sat on an airplane or on a train or somewhere next to a coworker or a friend or a stranger and you could have shared the gospel and you didn't. And now it's gone. It's over. And, and, and you feel that sense of, oh, I could have done more. God knows. God knows. I'm not trying to excuse when we fail, but Psalm 103, he remembers our frame and he knows that we're dust. And as a father has compassion on his children, so a father has compassion on you. There's this wonderful book. I'm going to read you the quote. It's long, but it's worth it. William Bridges, Puritan, wrote a book called The Lifting Up for the Downcast. He writes to this type of person. He says, every godly, gracious man is in covenant with God by Jesus Christ. And that covenant is a covenant of grace, which is the great charter of all his spiritual privileges and immunities. Now, in this great charter, the Lord proclaims this, that sincerity shall go for perfection, that a little done for God in the time of temptation shall be counted much. In this great charter, the Lord proclaims unto all his people that he regards rather the bent of the heart than the enlargement of the heart, that he rather regards the will to do than the doing. In this great charter, the covenant of free grace, the Lord proclaims unto all his people that if they fall in prayer and other duties, for I speak not of prayer only, he will not cast them off. 
but he will rather be moved by to pity them. For the covenant that the Lord makes with his people is as the covenant that a man makes with his wife. I will betroth thee unto me forever, says the Lord. Hosea 2.19. Now a man will not put away his wife for every failing. Neither will the Lord put away his people nor cast them off because he is betrothed to them, though they do fail in duties. Again, in this great charter and covenant of grace, the Lord proclaims unto all his children that what they lack in performance, he will make up in indulgence. He proclaims this unto them, that he will require no more than he gives, and he will give what he requires. He will accept what he gives. Now, therefore, am I in that covenant of grace? Are there many failings in all my duties? Yes, if this be true, that the Lord is more moved by my failings to pity me than to cast me off, then I have no reason to be discouraged. You know, personally, I look back on the ending of one season of ministry. I loved being the youth pastor here, but I look back and I, I see all the ways, oh, I could have done this more. I could have done this better. I could have prayed for that student more. I could have met with the student more. And I do feel a sense of like, oh, just a sense of, Lord, thank you for what you allowed me to do. But just this overwhelming sense of, well, I could have done more. But you have to come back. You have to come back to the goodness of God and the forgiveness of God and that he knows your frame and he remembers that you're dust and if you are covered in Christ, then you are, as Ephesians 1 says, accepted in the beloved. Accepted in the beloved. Consider the results. Fourth, consider the results. We're already over time. What are possible results if you don't handle guilt according to God's way, if you handle it according to the world's way? Despair. Despair which leads to destruction. The example of that is Judas Iscariot. Another result is a seared conscience. We see this it typified in Pharaoh. If you don't handle your guilt biblically, it can result in despair leading even up to suicide or a seared conscience that leads to damnation. If you don't handle your shame biblically, it could lead to apathy. It could lead to withdrawal, which ultimately leads to ineffectiveness for the king and for the kingdom. But what happens if you do follow the Bible's advice? What is the result if you follow the Bible's course of action? Hope and peace and forgiveness and purpose and direction. As the old hymn says, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. I said there was one other group that I wanted to speak to, and that is the people who feel shame for something that's been done to them. I know this is out of order in the notes, but I want to make sure I address this because in this room, undoubtedly, somebody is in that category. If you feel shame for something that's been done to you, some type of abuse, some type of harm, you need to know that you are not responsible for the sins of others you are absolutely not responsible for the sins of others. Something evil inflicted upon you is not a badge of shame that you need to bear. God loves you. Ezekiel 18 makes it very clear. The soul who sins shall die. God holds individual sinners responsible for their sin. It does not bear any reflect on your self-worth or your standing before God at all. Not a bit. Every human being is created in God's image and is precious to the Lord. And if you have been abused or violated in some way and you struggle with that daily shame of something that's been done to you, this idea that you are damaged goods, you need to know that in Christ you are precious, you are cherished, you are loved by God. And no matter what the evil, evil wickedness of this world has been afflicted upon you, that cannot be taken away from you. Fifth and finally, how do we cultivate godly growth in dealing with guilt and shame? You need to reach out to the local church. Guilt and shame love privacy, and privacy leads to destruction. Proverbs 18 says, he who isolates himself is a fool. A lone wolf Christian is a dead wolf Christian. 
reach out to the local church. It doesn't matter if it's embarrassing. It doesn't matter if there are legal consequences or marital consequences. Reach out, open up. That's what the church is here for. A Christian who begins to isolate himself and pull back from the church is setting themselves up for disaster. They are the wildebeest in the nature documentary that's going to get eaten by the cheetah, okay? Reach out to the local church. Seek accountability. Take in scripture every day. Read broadly. Read deeply. Memorize. Keep short accounts with God and with others. Confess what needs to be confessed to whom it needs to be confessed. Don't hold anything overnight, even if it's painful. Some of you may need to have some conversations with your spouses tonight. And some of you then need, may need to be calling up your pastor or your discipler. That's okay. That's what we're here for. Be rent, relentlessly biblical in your thinking. The evil one will come to you and say that your shame is too much or your guilt is too much. It can't be dealt with. It can't be atoned for. Just give yourself to this idol or this distraction or redefine it. Be relentlessly biblical in your thinking and turn to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we often are tempted to handle guilt and shame according to the world's folly. We ask, Lord, that you would please help us to think about guilt and shame biblically, knowing that the answer for this, these painful issues, these painful emotions, is found completely in you, Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you came and you took our guilt and you took our shame so that we could go free that the hope of the gospel is that you bear the guilt and shame so that we could have your righteousness, your robes for ours. What a great exchange. I pray, Lord, that the believers here would rejoice in that exchange and the unbelievers would run to you and have that transaction take place, that they would be cleansed, washed, regenerated, and covered in your perfect righteousness where there is no guilt and there is no shame. We pray this in your name. Amen.